If you will open in your copy of God's Word to Colossians, we're continuing our study in Colossians. We have the high ambition of three verses tonight. Colossians chapter 1. I tried to do more, I'm just not good at it. Colossians chapter 1. Before Billy Graham, there was evangelist D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, when he first heard that the World Fair was coming to Chicago, his mind began to race with the mind of an evangelist. All of these people got to tell them about Jesus. The year was 1893. And millions of people, in a a time before automobiles, I think some 21 million people came to Chicago to see the most interesting exhibits in the world. I spent more time than I should have reading about this and researching this illustration. But there are all sorts of interesting things there. Both America and Chicago had a lot to prove. Chicago had just gone through the the great famous fire and, and they were bent on showing off to the world. The fair included the world's first Ferris wheel, the first moving walkway, the first moving picture, and the first juicy fruit gum. But the fair was not just about products and amusements. It was also about displaying the ideas of the world. One controversial exhibit was known as the World Parliament of Religions. It was, a, it, was a fir- it was one of the first formal gatherings of that kind in, 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 this, in this particular uh, period of time where, where representatives of multiple religions, namely Western religions and Eastern religions, gathered together and the intent was to share religious ideas and some said the goal was to try to come up with like a, like a super religion. You take all the the good stuff of different religions and mix them together and and come up with with the best of all worlds. Well, as you can imagine, this religious summit was not popular among conservative Christians. And D.L. Moody was heavily pressured to criticize and to attack and to to use his influence to to speak out against this, even by those in in his staff. But he was too excited about the 21 million people coming and the opportunity that he might have to share, to share Christ with them. So Deal Moody rented out a circus tent. That's what you did in those days. And he organized preaching posts all over the city. And to the dismay of many, he ignored the parliament of religion. He had a different strategy. His goal was not to argue. He simply wanted to preach Jesus. You see, D.L. Moody was convinced that if he simply held up Jesus as the matchless God, the, the God who has no rivals, the God without peers, then Jesus could speak for himself. He famously said, I'm going to make Jesus so attractive that men will want to turn to him. Well, God blessed his efforts. 
Known as the Chicago Campaign of 1893, it ended up being the most successful evangelistic event in his career where thousands came to know Christ. But I love that quote, I want to make Jesus attractive so that the world will turn to him. Jesus does not need our marketing. He does not need our apologies. He does not need our strategies. For when Jesus is held up among other gods, he shines. Because Jesus is better. He's supreme. That's the main idea in the book of Colossians. And this sort of just holding Jesus up is kind of the strategy that the Apostle Paul uses in writing to the Colossians here in this letter that we are studying. He has now gotten his greetings out of the way, and now Paul is getting down to business in typical Pauline fashion. Now, you'll remember, if you remember from our, our first weeks in the study, Paul is, he's writing to a church that he hadn't visited, we think, and he's writing because he's concerned about a theological idea. There's some type of, of theological problem in the church. And we talked about that some, and we'll talk about it more, but best we can tell, there is, there's some mixture of Jewish religion and pagan religion and Greek ideas, uh, like a syncretistic sort of idea, and the problem was, was that it made less of Jesus. Jesus was not as important. Jesus was not fully God. It made less of, of Jesus. And Paul demolishes this idea. And the way he does it is he does, he uses D.L. Moody's approach. Or maybe D.L. Moody used Paul's approach. (laughs) He simply held up Christ as supreme. The supreme God, the Lord, the creator over all things. And I think even from the beginning, this teaches us that all people, including church folk, you know any of them? including Wednesday night church folk, we desperately need to understand who Jesus is. Not just some historical facts, not just a few basics, but we need to see him as he is. That's the main idea from our text this evening. The takeaway that I hope, and and actually I hope that you take away much more than, than an idea, a theological idea. I'm praying that you leave with a vision of what Jesus is like, that he would be, as I prayed, more beautiful. So our main idea this evening is that an accurate vision of Christ, or seeing Jesus as he really is, is the solution for a thousand problems. Seeing Jesus as he is, is the solution for a thousand problems. Let's read our text together this evening, first the first chapter of Colossians, and we will we'll read verses 15 all the way through 20, but we'll, we'll extend our study till next week. 115. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or rulers or dominions or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Will you pray with me? Father, we now ask your blessing as we do each week upon this time. We pray that by your spirit you would move powerfully in our hearts. We pray that you would correct any errors, any, any, any false ideas that we have of you and of your son and of your spirit. We pray, Father, that we would come to love you more and delight in you more. I pray, Father, that, that the truths that you've revealed to us about yourself would not be dull or hard to understand, but that you would give us clarity as we look at your word. And so, Father, I pray that for all these things, that for that to happen, my words fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Let your word remain in our hearts, and there let it bear much fruit, not so that we get glory, but that Christ would receive glory. We ask this in his name. Amen. The passage before us over the next couple of weeks is a very well-known passage in the scriptures. It is perhaps one of the high marks, perhaps even the high mark of Christology, what the Bible teaches us about Christ. It provides us with incredibly glorious details about who Christ is. And it deserves our careful attention. Most think that it was a hymn. My, my understanding would be that Paul uh, either knew of a hymn and adjusted it to fit the occasion, or that perhaps Paul even wrote the hymn himself. It was a, a concrete, compact description of who Jesus was, one that could be sung, one that could be memorized. And so as we close our service later tonight, we will actually read together uh, a, different, a different creed that speaks of some of these same things. So don't let me forget. That's why I said that out loud. It's a passage that deserves our careful attention. And in our study of these first several verses, we will see together that Christ is supreme. And we'll see it in a couple of different ways. Three different ways that Christ is above all other beings and all other things. And we will be left with the truth and hopefully with a new sense of the truth that no one and nothing is better than Jesus. Now before we go any further, there, there will be th- parts of this that may feel deep to you. There are times where I felt like I was, trying, I was swimming and trying to understand what does this preposition mean? What's the difference in in him and through him and for him and from him and by him? And, right? That's, Paul, that's reading, reading Paul. So there may be, and, and we're, we're, we're swimming in some deep waters tonight. And let me, let me just encourage you. There may be parts that feel... Uh, Sometimes I feel like this when I'm studying theology. I'm like, I hear you, and I think I understand what you're saying, and I definitely agree with you, but what what does this mean? Like, how does this work? And what I've found is, especially as I study the scriptures more and as I am taught more by other people, is that very often the fruit comes a little later, right? Things click and you begin to understand things in a new way. 
So don't, don't focus only on how does this apply, but let's just see what God has revealed to us about Christ, even if it doesn't feel immediately relevant to, to your Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock, as we say. There are details here that are, that are part of a big picture, and that as they come together, you will be able to see Jesus more clearly. I suppose that a botanist can appreciate a flower better than one who is not trained. I suppose that a collector of rare coins can better appreciate the 1861 Clark and Gruber $20 gold coin, which is selling for $52,000, because their eyes have been trained. They know, they know what they are looking at and delighting in. We want to understand all the details, all the nuances, and all the particulars of who Christ is. We don't get to decide what is important about Christ. He tells us. God has by his spirit revealed this to us, and that alone makes it important. So let's look at this, look at this together. The first thing we'll see here is that Jesus is supreme from all eternity. Jesus is supreme from all eternity. You can see there in verse 15 that we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now we have to take those a phrase at a time. So let's just take it one phrase at a time. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. There were probably those in Colossae who were saying that Jesus was not God. Maybe he was a good guy, maybe he was smart, maybe he was wise, maybe he was a prophet, but that he was not God. Maybe that he came from God, but in some way he was less. He was not God. You remember, and try to be sympathetic here, the Jewish religion is monotheistic. There is only one God. So this is, this, you gotta, you gotta, I mean, this is hard to understand. And, and perhaps to them as they, as they hear about Jesus proclaimed as the Christ. We have had the advantage of 2,000 years of brothers and sisters who have gone before us and have thought very, very, very hard and very carefully about these things. And much of the language that you and I use when we talk about God, we have inherited from those who have come before us. And we should thank God for that as a gift. We'll read that later in the Nicene Creed, a portion of that together. And here, Paul is boldly claiming Jesus did not just come from God, he did not just proceed from God, because he would be inferior. And he was not born out of God, but that he is God. God, who is invisible, is imaged in Christ. Christ is the image of God. Okay, well, okay, well what does that mean? What, what, is, what does that mean that Christ is the image of God? Well, let's start with that word image. The word, it's rich with meaning, but in one sense it means representation. Christ is the representation of God. There's a really helpful example that we have in history that I think describes this. We have an example of where a soldier, apparently a, a fairly wealthy soldier, sent a letter home to his father and he said this. And I'll just, since we speak English, we'll, you, we'll use the English version. He, he said to his father, I have sent you a little image, or the word he used, it's like a portrait 
of myself painted by Ekman. I'm sending a portrait of myself, an image of myself home, who is painted by such and such artist, right? The image. From this type of usage, we could say Jesus is the portrait of the God who is invisible. Remember, God is spirit. This fits in with what John teaches in John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, yet Jesus, he has made him known. God has revealed himself to us. He has sent a portrait of himself to us in Jesus. But our, our language is limited there because it is more than just a picture of him. That's not what we mean. We have to be careful when we say that Jesus is the portrait of God because we're not talking about his physical attributes. God does not have physical attributes. He is spirit. So Jesus is revealing not the physical attributes of God, but the spiritual attributes of God. Jesus is the image of God's character. Shakespeare, this, this may interest some of you, and some of you might fall asleep if, as soon as I say the word Shakespeare. So don't anybody fall asleep. Shakespeare once said... What is the manner of a man? Is his head worth a hat or his chin worth a beard? Right? If we translated that to East Tennessee vernacular, we'd say, what sort of man is he? And is he enough of a man to wear a hat? And is he enough of a man to grow a beard? Well, Jesus is the revelation of what kind of God God is. What God is like. What sort of God he is. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 we read, He's the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is not just like God or just a representative of God. He is God. And he has always been God. He is supreme from all eternity. He's the image of God. Well, there's another layer of this word. You see how this, is, how this is deep and exciting. You'll notice that often the deepest, the most exciting treasures are buried deep in the ocean. So that, that fits. There's another layer of this word image. Paul is saying that Jesus is the image of God. Well, what does that phrase make you think of? Image of God. What, what do you think of? Do you think back to Genesis hopefully, chapter 1, where we read that God has made man, how? In his own image, in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26, God made, and now we can mix some of our ideas here, God has made, God made man to be representatives of God. In other words, think of it like this. The world was supposed to be able to look at humanity and tell what God is like. They were to look at the way humanity lived, the way humanity ruled over the world, the way they cared for animals and cared for the garden and treated one another and tell what kind of God he is. Our character, our dealings, our language were all to be representative of God's character. But of course, Adam and Eve were bad representatives 
And we fell in Adam. And now humanity is a gross representative of what God is like. But here, Jesus is presented as the image of God. Meaning he's not only truly God, he is truly human. Do do you see that connection? He, Jesus, is the picture of what a man should be, of what mankind should be like. Which is why, as followers of Christ, we too should strive to be like Jesus. As we will see later in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Just as we can look at Jesus and determine the character of God, the world should be able to look at us and determine the character of God. In fact, the Bible says that's a big part of what they do. How far do you fall short of that standard? If an artist were somehow to, was somehow able to look at your life, And based on nothing else, paint a portrait of the character of God. What would your God look like? What what would your parenting tell the world about the sacrificial love of God? Or the patience of God? What does your giving tell the world about the generosity of God? What do your relationships with difficult, hard people... God deals with a number of hard people, you may be aware of. What do your relationships with difficult and hard people tell the world about how God treats his enemies? Jesus is a better image, isn't he? Praise him. Praise Jesus, the image of God. We could spend much more time, but I think that's what, eight words? So perhaps we should keep going. Number two. (laughs) Number two, Jesus is supreme in all creation. That's where where we'll spend most of our time this evening. He is supreme in all creation. This text shows us four different ways that we can see the ways that Jesus is supreme in all creation. The first way we see that Jesus is supreme in all creation is that the text says that he is the firstborn of creation. Now this verse has gotten some well-meaning folks into some trouble. I'm assuming they're well-meaning. Folks like Jehovah's Witnesses have, have read this verse and said, Oh, firstborn of creation? Oh, Jesus is the first created person. And their translations of the Bible and their doctrine reflect that serious, serious error. There was a very famous heresy that swept the church in the, in the, in the first centuries of the church known as Arianism. And Arius taught this, this very same thing. But both of them and all their followers, who are many, ignored the very next words in the text, among other things, where it says that by him all things were created. Perhaps even more importantly, they miss, and we don't want to make this mistake, they miss the meaning of the word firstborn. It's one word in the Greek. Firstborn, the idea of firstborn is not primarily about birth order, like who came out first, but it primarily refers to the honor that is attributed to the one who is born first. The position 
You remember the story? There are many examples of this. But do you remember the story of Jacob and, and Esau? Esau was the oldest, the firstborn. Which meant that he got the coveted birthright. Esau, since he was firstborn, enjoyed the honor and the privileges of being first in the family. Perhaps one of the best places to see this, one of the most important places to see this in the Bible, is in Psalm chapter 89, verse 27. You can jot that down or you can listen as I read it. Because in that psalm, God is speaking about the Messiah. And this is what he says. Listen carefully. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. In other words, the firstborn gets the highest position. He uses the word firstborn to say he is above all kings. So when Paul is saying that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's saying Jesus deserves and enjoys the highest honor in all creation. Why? Because he is God. That is the position of God. Jesus is supreme over all creation. He is above all created things. There is nothing, and here's application for us. There's nothing in all creation. No person, no product, no experience, no situation, Nothing you can buy, nothing you can feel, nothing you can see, nothing you can do that is better or higher or more thrilling than Jesus. When you come to understand that by experience, your life changes. You find power to overcome sin that you did not even know existed. When you become convinced that Jesus is better than anything that he created, Whether that's a feeling in your body, a taste on your mouth, something you see, a game you play, a relationship you dream up, Jesus is better. Because he made all that stuff, as we will see here in a moment. There's another another reason in this text. Jesus is firstborn. He is the highest in creation. But the second, second way we see his supremacy is that he is the creator of creation. The creator of creation. Verse 16 tells us that it is by him that all things were created. Or perhaps you could say it is in him that all things were created. I spent a long time trying to understand what what this means. And I I think that this is a general statement about that, that declares that everything that is, is made by Jesus. Is created by God. Everything that is seen or unseen, it has all been created by God the Son. He created out of nothing, ex nihilo, with no assistance, no starting point, no aid, no instructions, and no YouTube videos to guide him, which amazes me. I can't do anything without a YouTube video. I heard a joke once, it's, it's a little bit... I don't know if crude's the word, but it's a joke, okay? I don't do many Jesus jokes, but Jesus and a scientist were talking one day, and the scientist was saying, you know, I'm not that impressed that you claim to have created man from the dust. And the scientist said, give me and all my scientist buddies enough time, and we will figure out also how to create life out of dust, just like you did in Genesis. 
And Jesus, the joke goes, said, okay, go for it. So the scientist reaches down to pick up some dirt, and Jesus says, ah, 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 get your own dirt. (laughs) Jesus alone can create out of nothing. And that should, as though it makes our mind just sort of end, that should dazzle us. Even more, the extent of his creation should dazzle us. The text goes to great extremes to show how exhaustive his creation and his supremacy in that creation is. Go through if you want some fun and count how many times the word all or derivatives of all appear in this text. Emphasizing everything. It's all his. Paul is very specific beyond even just saying that he has created all things. He says specifically things that are visible and invisible. Well, does that cover? What does that cover? I'm not the brightest guy, but that, uh, that for, that's, an, that's good for me, right? He, Paul keeps going. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or ruled, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. These specifics, these thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, I think we can, we can put these together. They all appear to be authorities in the spiritual realm. I think Paul is emphasizing here, probably because of whatever's going on, whatever's in their, their funky theology, is probably related to something with the spiritual realm and the angelic, angelic realm. And so Paul is emphasizing that Jesus is supreme, not only over the physical world, but over the spiritual world. The Lordship of Christ extends to what you see and what you do not see. We, could, we should spend a lot of time meditating on that. I've found a great deal of pleasure meditating on a few examples. But think of it like this. The Lordship of Christ extends to every one of the 800,000 cataloged insects. Half of which may be in my garage. But he is supreme over all of them. He's created all of them. I read that some species have billions of examples of them. He is supreme over the sea creatures that no human has ever seen. And he is supreme over every planet and every star. We may have staked the American flag on the moon. But the flag of the Lordship of Jesus Christ has been already staked upon the moon and on every one of the hundreds of billions of stars that exist in the Milky Way. Which, by the way, is only one galaxy that exists among the estimated billions of galaxies. There is no place in the universe where Christ is not the supreme Lord. I don't care what we find in space. We will never find anything better than Jesus. So why do you look for it on Amazon? He told all of those galaxies and all those stars to exist. And they obeyed out of nothing. But his lordship is not restricted to the physical, but also to every angel and every demon and every spirit. At the name of Jesus, Satan himself grows weak in his ancient knees, where he has spent most of his existence begging for permission for his satanic activities. 
And even Satan needs a passport and a visa to travel in the realm of Christ's lordship. And it will not be long until Satan will submit his arthritic knees to his eternal destiny in his rightful place in Christ's universe. Hell, where Christ reigns there even still. Christ is supreme over all creation because he made it. It is his. And Jesus did not create anything better than himself. We can be sure of that. Now we need to convince our hearts of that. We can see a third way that Christ is supreme over all creation and that the text shows us what the end or the goal, the telos is of creation. The text says that all was created through him, but it also says that all was created for him. That's the end. That's the end game of creation. Everything in the created world belongs to Christ, and it is for his pleasure, and it is for his glory. One of the, that means many things, but one of the things it means is you are his. Someday, some say you could translate this passage, all things were created, not just saying to him, but sort of toward him. Like it's pointing toward him. All things began with the creator, right? He's the creator, and all things will end with him. He is the alpha and the omega. Begins and ends. The goal of the created world is for God to receive glory. And for you and I, as well as all the spiritual beings, we are to look around and to marvel at the God that we see evidence of and worship him. That's the point. That is the purpose of your life. Not to follow your dreams to whatever it is you think your dreams are. Your purpose is to worship and enjoy Jesus forever. That's the point. He did all of this. And he deserves the credit for it. In Philippians chapter 2, do you remember the well-known verse that's telling of what will come? That in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord. And God will get all the glory for that. That's the purpose. There's a fourth way we see Christ's supremacy in creation. And that is that he is the sustainer of creation. Christ is also superior to all things because he holds it together. He sustains it. Verse 17 is the verse that is inscribed on the inside of my wedding band. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. It seemed fitting and it's even more fitting now as I've considered this verse. I'm going to venture out of my expertise some, but I was reading a number of scientists who were reflecting on this passage, and it was very amusing. Perhaps this will help us reflect on what does it mean that Christ holds all things together. They were using, scientists and theologians are both, well, some of them, are happy to illustrate this truth with some of the mysteries of the atom. And I will spare you and myself trying to repeat the technical details. But the scientists, from what I gather, are baffled by what holds an atom together. All right? Is anybody having horrific flashbacks to eighth grade science class? Or you were some of those people who like science, weren't you, right? 
that's what it made me think of. Baffled by what it is that holds together the nucleus of the atom. Perhaps, probably not, you will remember from your science days that an oxygen atom has eight positive protons and eight neutral neutrons. You didn't remember. I know. I didn't either. It's okay. Right? Eight positive and eight neutral. Now, and that's happening in the tiny space of a nucleus. Now, you remember playing with magnets as a kid? Or maybe now? (laughs) Right? How do you get magnets to stick together? What happens if you take two positive ends of a magnet? What happens? They repel, right? You have to have a positive and a negative. But inside the nucleus of an atom, you have eight positives and eight, not eight negatives, but eight neutrals, right? And scientists are like, what in the world holds this together? What keeps it from just flying apart? What keeps it, what, what keeps it from even being worse? Well, one physicist, a, name by the, a man by the name of George Garneau, who uh, is one who put forth the, the Big Bang Theory. So he is not a theist. He marveled at this, and this is what he said. The fact that we live in a world in which practically every single object is a potential nuclear explosive without being blown to bits is due to the extreme difficulties that attend the starting of a nuclear reaction. He didn't, I don't think he read Colossians 1, but just think, think about what he's saying, right? Do you remember the incredible power of a nuclear reaction? In other words, do you, have you heard of the atomic bomb, right? A nuclear reaction, all the energy that is released when an atom is split. All that energy. What holds the atom together? Colossians tells us, God, Christ holds all things together. If Christ were for even a moment to stop sustaining the universe that he created, it would disintegrate. I one pastor I read, he said it would be nuclear meltdown. Right? That Christ is keeping us from that. He, Hebrews 1 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What kind of God is this? I'm really thankful for my wife. She's not here tonight, but I, I love hearing her teach and instruct our children. Especially when she's teaching them of the scriptures. And one of the many things that my wife has gotten the habit of doing is that she'll tell my kids about some, some awesome work of God. So she'll say, uh, like, like raising a man from the dead, or, or making a blind man see, or parting the Red Sea, or bringing water out of a rock, or, 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 or a baby coming from a virgin. All these things are counting the hairs on your head, and Haley will ask my kids, she'll say, our kids, and she'll say, can you do that? Right? Can you make a blind man see? We do this all the time. Addie, can you raise someone from the dead? Can you obey that law like Jesus did? And my kids have learned, the answer to that question is always no, right? They've just, I don't even think, I think that it's like the, the Jesus answer at Sunday school at our house is like, no, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that, right? I can't do that. It's my wife's gentle way of teaching our children, know your place. Get in your place. This is God's world. He is supreme. Get in your place. Know your role. Know your role. A third thing we see in this text 
is that Jesus is supreme in the church. We'll have to address it quickly, but look down here at verse 18. We're seeing that Jesus is supreme in all the world, but if that could be double true, it is double true in the church where we have willingly submitted our lives to him and acknowledged that he is this Lord. We have acknowledged, to be a Christian, you've said, I want to follow Jesus. I've submitted my life to him as Lord. And verse 18 describes him as the head of the body. The head indicates control, independence. As the body is totally dependent upon the head, which it is, And as the body submits to the commands of the head, so the church is totally dependent upon and submissive to Christ, our head. Verse 18 also tells us that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. We have that firstborn language again. The language, remember, is language of honor. This Christ man, this Son of God, is the first to bear the penalty of sin and die and then rise again. He's the first one. He is the first one born from the dead, and he is first and he is best and he is top. Our resurrection is totally dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Totally. And this, oh my goodness, we could spend forever control. This this gives us hope, right? The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the source of hope that I may rise from the dead because Jesus has gone before us. If you have placed your faith in Christ, there awaits you a resurrection from the dead so that it is true for us to say it is not death to die. That is our hope. He has died, he has gone before us, and he came out of the grave. So he's best. Verse 18 wraps some of this up for us. He says that all of this has been done, why? So that in everything, he would be preeminent. He would be first. How in the world do we apply these glorious truths? There's so, there's so many ways we could do this. One way, how, how, do we, how do we get our minds, how do we adjust our lives to the fact that Christ rules supreme over all creation, including the new creation, the creation to come and the creation that has begun? How, 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 do, we, how do we get, as a church, how do, we get, how do we respond to the fact that he has created the church? And now we submit to him. So what, what do we do? What does this do different? I, I bet many of us believe this already, but what do we do? Well, there are many applications, and one that I'll just mention briefly, and I'll let you take it home and explore it, perhaps with a friend or a spouse. But think about how this knowledge affects your problems. How this affects the way you experience your problems. If you claim to worship the Jesus of the New Testament, then you are worshiping the God who literally holds together the nuclei of all of the atoms of the universe. And he does it effortlessly. What was your problem again? You see? We know that, we know from Jesus, who is the imprint of God's character, what God is like. 
And we know that he is so concerned about your problems that he was willing to become a man and suffer and die unjustly for you and I so that we would not bear the weight of his wrath, which we absolutely 100% deserve. That was our problem. He came and he proved that he loves us. What was our problem again? Wrap your problems up in these truths and watch how peace follows. But I think the bigger application here is, is obvious. He is Lord. Get in your place. Submit your life to him. I'd like to invite you as we close to turn over to Romans chapter 11. We'll close with this, with this idea. If you have read Romans, and I hope you have, you know that Paul reaches a point there at the end of chapter 11 where he just kind of explodes, and this is so great and so big and so amazing. Praise God, praise God, praise God, right? Paul finally pauses there at the end of Romans 11 from his meditation on the work and the mystery, the work of Christ and the mystery of the gospel. And then he says this in 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Sounds a lot like what we just said, right? But that chapter division can get us hung up because the very next sentence he says, 12.1, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view, as you see these mercies, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual or true act of worship. That word there, right? So you see it. You see the mercies. Now, therefore, submit your life to him. The King James, there's a word there at the end where I think the SV says uh, your spiritual worship. The King James translated that, uh, uh, what was it, Benny? Reasonable? Reasonable worship, right? Your reasonable worship. The Greek word there is, is a word logikos, What's that sound like? Logic, right? It's, it's a reasonable, it's reasonable worship. And I think that's a helpful word picture for us. Because when you come to understand who God is in Christ, and when you come to understand what that means for the world, the only logical thing to do is surrender. The only logical thing to do is to totally live your life for him, to completely surrender. For the believer... Any other life is illogical. It doesn't make sense to say we believe that God is like this and then live like he is not like this. This is your reasonable submit to him. You make your life a living sacrifice. This is a reasonable spiritual act of worship. Every time that we fall into that trap of elevating something, something that God made for his glory, when we elevate that to the position of supremacy in our life, every time we resist surrendering some part of our heart or our allegiance or our trust in the Lord, we are acting illogical and, dare I say, insane. This vision of God compels us not only to marvel at Him, but to submit to Him in all things. And that includes us. For we were created, as this text says, for Christ. So our question is, is our life ordered accordingly? Anything else is illogical.